If you saw the video earlier, you discovered we had an awesome retreat with the men this weekend, and uh, it, it, was, it was good. I mean, guys were sleeping in trees, they were sleeping on the ground, they, <laughs> they were everywhere. Um, it, it was amazing. Uh, and some of our boys stayed up the whole night around the campfire, making sure that it didn't go out. You know, when dads are asleep, boys will play with fire. That's kind of the way it normally goes. But it was a great, awesome experience and looking forward to more things that we do. The ladies' retreat is planned for this week. We've got included skeet shooting and mushroom hunting. And yeah. <laughs> All right, so, uh, but you've got to bring all that back too, right? Uh, but it was a good weekend, so I, I'm thankful for the guys who put all that together. And my goodness, we had over 80 guys that signed up to go to that thing. And it was, it was an awesome, awesome weekend. So um, looking forward to more things that we're doing as we're able to get into summer again and things are starting to warm up and, and uh, some of the restrictions are beginning to let down. And, and it's just a joy to be able to celebrate and worship together and, and, and do things with the body of Christ. We're moving into our series here as we go to the cross and beyond. We're going to get closer to the finish of this um, week of Jesus here, that week of his passion. Today I want to kind of talk with you about the hands that touched the cross. It wasn't just Jesus' hands that were on that cross, but there were other hands that that actually held that wood and touched it at periods of, of time. And so we're going to look at those. But, you know, recognize that the hands of the carpenter... I mean, they must have been rough. The hands of the, just that village carpenter, they, they, they had to have been scarred already because of the work that he had done with it. In an age without uh, lotions or, or gloves, probably, they were shoving boards around, pushing things here, getting splinters, gripping the lumber with their bare-knuckled fingers, and, and they absorbed everything to carve the wood and to fashion it into something that would be useful for the community. And a day without sunscreens, a lot of times they labored out in the sun and, and allowed that heat to beat down on them. And that, that blistering Mideastern sun and heat was, was there. In an age without modern machinery, they figured ways to do things that seemingly seemed impossible. They erected buildings and houses and they fashioned furniture and they repaired children's toys. The hands of the carpenter must have been developing a thick layer of skinned protective hide that was obvious when you shook hands with him because they were weathered and they were working hands. But oh, what gentle hands, the hands of a carpenter, never squeezing too hard or touching too roughly or overzealously slapping the back of a child. And yet what powerful hands. With the trace of a single finger, he restored sight to the blind. He brought life to the dead. He healed the leper's skins just by his touch. He lifted a suffering soul from life's cruel disregard. But oh, what wounded hands, too. They bore the scars that no medicine could ever heal. They were the hands of Jesus. The gospel uses words about hands and fingers and touch nearly 200 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it was used in in phrases such as, Jesus put his hand out and touched him. So he touched her hand. And he went in and took her by the hand. 
Then he touched their eyes. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand. Jesus came and touched them. Let the little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. It was those hands, those precious, rugged, tender hands that were nailed to the cross that day. But those hands weren't the only ones that touched the cross. So this morning, I'd like for us to, to, to get a better understanding of some of the others who might have been there that day, and they played an important role in, in the crucifixion of Jesus. And each person, from their own perspective, was different than any of the others. And at some point, they laid their hands on the cross. To begin with, I'd like to think about the carpenter of that cross, the one who, who actually built it, the one who had to, to, to begin to work that wood and to get it ready for the work that was about to take place for a crucifixion. I mean, it may have been just a normal day. He was working in the wood shop, and, and the master carpenter was given an order to fill, and it was issued from the governor's palace, Pilate. What would he want this time? Maybe it would be for a new bedroom set or, or cabinetry for his, his library, or, or possibly it could be something that was quite as simple as a gavel for his judgment seat. But this time it wasn't for a, a piece of, of fine furniture or any kind of ornamental decor, decor or to adorn the palace. It wasn't anything of that kind of nature. Matter of fact, it wasn't even a doghouse for his dog. It was an order for six wooden beams, three staros and three patibulum. Ah, it appears the Romans are at it again. Those six beams would most definitely be used for a crucifixion. He knew that was was. That's not what he really wanted to do, but he needed the money. You think, what a waste of fine, precious commodity, wood. If you've ever been into Israel, you'll, you'll realize that wood and trees are not a, of an abundance. Rocks, dirt, yes. And so not everything is made out of wood. Most buildings are made out of the rock and the stone. Wood isn't easy to come by in that region, at least not in Jerusalem. And, and so he was thinking, where can I put my hands on six pieces of wood that were really of no use for anything else? They had no value to them. Maybe back in the scrap heap behind the, the shop, and he would check there to make see, see if there was something there, and surely he could find some knotty piece of wood that that he would not be able to use for any other thing of his craftsmanship and his trade. And there they were, bending down to, to pick them up one by one, those heavy beams. He, he knew the feel of their strength just by touching them. And he determined which ones would be capable of holding a body up in the air for a sustained period of time. Crosses. What a waste. There were different forms of crosses that the Romans used. The, the, the most simple, the basic one, was called the crus simplex. It's just a, a vertical stake that, that, that the 
person was tied to. Their, their hands were put over their heads, and maybe they were tied above the top or they were nailed to the top, and they just kind of dangled there. And with that shape of wood, it'd be just easy to do. Matter of fact, you could just even do that on a tree or maybe even on the side of a building. But however, the Romans had developed and practiced the custom of parading condemned men around town before their death and letting people know who they were and what they had done. And so they they would want to have this, this wooden yoke of a beam fashioned to the condemned. They called it a patibulum or a furca. And sometimes they would beat the criminal and they would whip him as they would walk through the streets of the Via Della Rosa, that way of suffering. The Romans, they combined the simple stake, that simple crux simplex, with another beam and they cross beam. They called it the crux compacta. And it would take different forms. It might be the crux commissa, which was this connected cross. It looked kind of like the capital T or the letter tau for the Greeks. Victims were nailed to this cross with their arms outstretched, and their feet would be either nailed together or on the outside of the beam to hold them up. Then there was also the crux emissa, which looks more like the one above our baptistry. A little bit lower than the top, giving room for a placard to be assigned on it to display for the world as they walked by along that road to see what that person was hanging there for, what crimes they had committed, maybe even their name. Then there was the crux decasada. We would suggest it just looks like the capital X, but it borrowed its name from the Roman number 10. Decusus. So these two wooden planks would be formed in an X shape, and, and the individual would be fastened on them with their arms and their legs splayed out. And you would see these crucifixions increasing in number as the years go by. It became a favorite way of executing people within the Roman government. But it wasn't just that carpenter who put his hands on those crosses initially. There was another man from Cyrene, a man by the name of Joseph. And he's just walking in. Matter of fact, he may have been at the wrong place at the wrong time or quite possibly the right place at the right time. You've been there before too, I think. Simon, he meets, he meets Jesus in probably the most unusual way of encountering him. Mark and Luke tell us that he was coming in from out of the country, whether out of curiosity or just simply because he was being stuck in the foot traffic there in Jerusalem. Simon ends up being a bystander to Jesus as he's making his way to the skull outside of town, Golgotha. Mark 15, 21 says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So weakened by the flogging and the beating that he had just taken, Jesus could no longer carry his cross by himself, stumbling. He would fall and he would fall again. Whether Simon felt any sympathy for Jesus or not, we don't know. 
The Bible doesn't record that for us. And it didn't matter because the Roman soldiers were forcing him to help Jesus bear his cross out to Golgotha. Can you imagine coming face to face with this man who is on his death march to the skull? Not just watching him, but getting right up in his face being pushed out into the street and forced to pick up that bloodied wooden beam that he had been carrying, feeling the weight of the instrument of death, surely that made Simon consider his own mortality, wouldn't you think? Can you imagine putting yourself in that place where you were the one to have to bend over and pick up that beam and carry it? But then those eyes, those eyes of that man from Galilee, looking intently into yours as they did Simon's that day, I'm sure. Such love and gratitude. I mean, I'm certain that in that moment that, that the encounter came in such a fashion that, that it, it, it just it, it made the gospel make more sense to him when he hears it. And it put a lasting impression on him. And we wonder why was he included in this story? I mean, surely Simon's life was forever changed, and maybe even his family as well, because of this incident. How could he ever get the blood out of his mind? I mean, it was everywhere. Wherever that beam rested on his clothing, there was blood now. It was in his hair. It was on his cheeks and his hands. I mean, his hands were covered with the blood of Jesus because... It was obviously on that beam itself. And his own sweat, having to labor to carry that too, mixing with it. Can you picture it? I mean, every time he would look down at his hands from then on, he was probably transported back to that moment in which he touched the cross. which he picked up the cross in which Jesus was to be crucified on. And step by step, he went with him to Golgotha to our salvation. But what's odd is this. In the book of Mark, Mark mentions the names of Simon's sons. It's the only gospel one that does. And Matthew and Luke, John, they omit it. They just, it's, it's out there. But, but somehow, and for some reason, they say Simon described Mark as the father of Alexander and Rufus. And I thought, well, that needs some explanation. It's not like Mark is writing in a manner that he did earlier, or later actually, when he's describing the women who were there at the, at the cross and he uses their, their children, but he does that in an essence to, to separate them. You see, in Mark 15, 40, it says, there were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. I mean, those sons were used to differ Mary from Mary from Mary from Mary. But there's no other Simon that is pictured here. So why would Mark include their names? 
Most likely the names of the boys were included because the readers of Mark's gospel may have even known them. Maybe Alexander, and I hope and I pray Alexander and Rufus probably became Christians, and as they grew up in the faith, they became prominent leaders in the church, and they were witnesses of what had transpired that day. And they've heard the story of their father over and over again as he would talk about Jesus and the significance of being the one who could help their Savior that day. You can go ask those boys. They're still living. That's what Mark is saying. Alexander and Rufus, it was their dad. He's the one who carried the cross of Christ. I mean, could it be that that maybe he's also the the Rufus that the Apostle Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 16, verse 13? He says, greet Rufus, the chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. But there was another who touched that cross. And it was his duty to touch it. It was his duty to make sure that everything was secure and safe. He was the soldier of the execution squad. Maybe it's just another day at the office. Not really. But it's a job, and, and somebody's got to do it. And he was ordered. I mean, to always live with the reality of death, and to know that you are the agent of death, I mean, even for a just cause, I mean, I think it's a very difficult thing. The life of a soldier is not an easy life. It is now and it wasn't then 2,000 years ago. Yet even soldiers who were hardened by by the thick and the heat of battle and the struggles of military service, even soldiers can receive the hope and the peace of Christ because of this sacrifice. When a crucifixion was taking place, there were soldiers that had to participate in its procedures. It was the soldier's responsibility to see to it that the condemned were affixed to a cross in a manner that could not be easily removed by a passerby or by a friend or family member, or matter of fact, that they couldn't even get off it themselves. It was also his duty to ensure that the most painful, excruciating torment was experienced there on the cross. And the Roman soldiers became professionals at that. By the way, the word that I just used, excruciating, it comes from the cross as well. Matter of fact, it it literally means, excruciating literally means out of the cross. And the most intense anguish and pain that one could receive came out of the cross, excruciating. On this day, it was something that was a little bit different. A man who would not even speak in his own defense when he was accused and he was facing the death penalty, it appeared that he was determined that he was going to go to the cruelty of the cross and to his death on his own if need be. It was as if he wanted to go there and that the people were in a uproar cheering about his death and his crucifixion. Mark 15, 16 through 20 says, And the soldiers, they led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in purple. This is Jesus. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed, 
spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and they put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Now once they reached the place of the skull, the wooden beam that had been carried there by this condemned or by somebody else such as Simon, it would be laid on the ground and then that criminal, that victim would be put down on the ground and he might have to be held in place because sometimes they fight. But this fellow just put his arms out, didn't resist. The soldier had to grab that spike, his hammer. Normally they would tie the person's wrist around there, make sure they couldn't move it, and then hold it there on the cross in order to hit Bring me a spike. You go get me a hammer. And even in the crowd and the noise that was there, you could still hear that nail being driven. With hands all bloodied and stained from the work of so many crucifixions, even the, the, the seasoned soldier couldn't stand to look at his own hands anymore because of death and blood. But it's a job. Somebody's got to do it. Matthew says this in verse 27, or chapter 27, beginning in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, they, hearing it, said, this, this man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine. And he put it on a, on a reed and he gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, wait. Let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And he yielded up his spirit. Behold, the curtain of the temple tore in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks, they were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep and raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was a Son of God. Surely He was the Son of God. I mean, what a statement. These were, these were fearful words coming from this centurion soldier. He was in awe of what was transpiring by everything that had taken place up to that moment. I mean, this centurion was commanded to execute Jesus by the governor, Pontius Pilate. Yet in his statement, the centurion disagrees with what the authorities have said, that he deserved death, and instead he agrees that Jesus is the Son of God. Why? Why would this 
man who has authority himself be in disagreement with what the authorities have said. We must remember that this soldier had probably seen many crucifixions, yet there was something different about this execution which he had never seen before. So what did he see? I mean, there, there are several events that took place from the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion that Jesus convinces the centurion that he is the Son of God. Jesus' response in this horrific treatment at the hands of the Roman soldiers and his own countrymen with utter silence. His mercy towards the moms and towards the soldiers, including this centurion. There in Luke 23, verse 34, it says, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They cast lots to divide his garments. And as they sat down to gamble for his few possessions, and just sit there and watch him die, Jesus is praying for their forgiveness. He wasn't praying for his own escape. He wasn't praying that God would take this away from him any longer. And it was amazing. And then not only that, but creation's response to him being on that cross and at his death. Matthew 27, verse 54 says, When the centurion and those with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. You see, this centurion was understandably shocked by the events that surrounded the death of Jesus Christ. He had never seen such things before, and, and his, his troops were terrified at the death of this man. I mean, this centurion and, and his, his group of, of battle-hardened soldiers who had learned to cope with fear, but now they experienced it themselves, and they had reason to be terrified because there was nothing ordinary about this crucifixion and the events around it. I mean, it was no ordinary ex execution. The darkness for three hours in the middle of the day, the earthquake, and the shout of Christ that convinced the soldiers that this was no ordinary execution. The events, they terrified them, and they made them realize that they were seeing God die on a cross. And the realization that He had just put to death the Son of God. There was no ordinary power around this either. They, they didn't come to this conclusion because of some explanation about it. Their conclusion came only from seeing the power of God on display in Jesus' responses and in nature. I mean, the earthquake and the sky, darkness. It was no ordinary confession either. I mean, this centurion confesses, and he tells us something very important about Jesus, that Jesus is revealed as our Savior, as God most clearly in his death. Truly, this was the Son of God. Matthew Henry, he wrote that we should respond like the centurion did. He said, let us with an eye of faith see Christ and Him crucified and be moved by that great love with which He loved us. Why? I mean, because what we see on the cross as a centurion did 
It's the perfect Son of God dying a, a terrible death for me, for you. The death he died, I deserved. He should have rejected it. Because oftentimes I think I'm not even worthy of it. Why would he have done that? When Jesus hung on the cross, he was receiving all of God's anger towards us for how we lived so that he might be able to bring us to the very presence of God, holy, blameless, innocent. Let us willingly give ourselves over to him for whatever he desires. But he wasn't the final man to touch that cross. There was another man, a man by the name of Joseph. He was from Arimathea. Luke 23, 50, 54 says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council, a good and a righteous man, who had not consented, listen to that, had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. He was there that night in the presence with those other Sanhedrin guys making the ruling that Jesus should go and he should be crucified out of blaspheme. And Joseph is there in their presence, and he did not give consent to it. And yet he was secretly a disciple of Jesus. Listen, he says, this man then went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus, and then he took it down and wrapped it in linen, shroud, and he laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Well, it was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. See, it was Joseph of Arimathea who had the honor of taking the body of Jesus Christ off of the cross. Think about what it would have liked to have been to have, have pulled the cold and the lifeless hands of Jesus, the Son of God, from that thick, barbed Roman nail out so you could get him off the cross as he's still suspended there. I mean, these were the hands that, that broke bread and they fed multitudes. Now these hands and this body were broken for us to feed multitudes salvation. These hands once applied clay to a blind man's eyes so he might see. They touched leopards and healed the sick and, and washed his disciples' feet not too long ago. This is the bloodied man whose arms and hands held children on his lap and hugged them. And Joseph is there to take him down. I mean, you think about as he's pulling those nails out of his hands and remembering the time that those fingers wrote something in the sand as that adulterous woman had been dragged before him for condemnation. 
His hands just earlier had formed and fashioned a whip and went into the temple and started chasing the, that den of thieves out of his father's house of prayer. These were the same fingers that took bread and they dipped it in that bowl with Judas. The same time Jesus expressing his deep love for him. And here he is, the bread of life. Being tipped into the cup of wrath of God and suffering. So that we can have our salvation. I mean, it's an ultimate gesture of God's love for the evil world that, that Judas represented. Joseph's shame, however, and he knew it full well as he's there taking the body of Jesus down off of that cross, that he had been afraid to own this Savior in public confession. So he was just secretly a disciple the Gospels tell us. And it sickened him about where he was before. Why didn't he speak out? And here he was, as his hands themselves were becoming bloodied. Imagine as he pulled the Spike out of the feet of Jesus, those beautiful feet that had once preached the gospel of peace. And Mary washed her and dried his feet with her hair. They walked upon the Sea of Galilee, and, and now they were crimson with a sea of blood. As Joseph reached out to his arms to get him down from the cross, perhaps he stared for just an instant in an inanimate face of the Son of God. His heart wrenched as he looked upon him as that had been pierced. This face that once radiated with the glory of God on that mount of transfiguration, the face that so many had looked upon with such veneration was now blood-stained from the needle-sharp crown of thorns upon it. And he was deathly pale and twisted from the unspeakable suffering that this world had put upon him. But now Joseph is going to do his best for him. And maybe as he looked at the eyes of Jesus, that once sparkled with the life of God, now stared nothingless but death. I mean, his lips which spoke of, of, of gracious words that, that calmed the fears of people for years, and, and, and the swollen and bruised now because of the beating that they had taken from those soldiers. And as it is written in Isaiah 52, 14, it says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that, of the ch beyond that of the children of mankind. Now Nicodemus was a part of this as well. He'd finally come out of the shadows too, and no longer at night would he come to Jesus, but he was there in the daytime to help Joseph to, to bring this body down and to take care of that body. And as the cold blood of the Lamb of God covered his hands, he, he was reminded of the blood of the Passover lamb that had been shed just for his own forgiveness many times. The death of each spotless animal had been so quick and merciless, but this death had been unspeakably cruel. It was vicious. 
It was, it was inhumane. It was brutal. It, it seemed that all the hatred of the world was being poured upon that man on the cross. And it was. That spear that was thrust in with cruel delight into the perfect Lamb of God. Perhaps as he carefully pried the crown off of his head, he looked at that gaping hole in his side and, and the deep mass of abrasions around his body and his back that had been mutilated because of that scourging he had taken. How could that have happened to this man? How did we let it happen? Words of the prophet Isaiah, I think they ring out even to this day. Isaiah 53, 5 through 11 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep, we've, we've gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. I mean, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and for his generation... <clears throat> who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." You see, Jesus of Nazareth, was, he was stripped of his robe that we might be robed in pure righteousness. He suffered deathly thirst that our thirst for life might be quenched as we hunger and thirst for righteousness. He agonized under the curse of the law that we might relish the blessing of the gospel of grace and mercy. He took upon himself the hatred of the world so that we could experience the love of God. Hell was literally let loose on him so that heaven could be let loose upon us. Jesus of Nazareth, he tasted bitterness of death so that we might taste the sweetness of life everlasting. The Son of God willingly passed over his life that death might freely pass over the sons and the daughters of Adam.
May Calvary's cross be as real to us as it was to those who stood on its bloody soil on that terrible day. May we also gaze upon the face of the crucified Son of God and may shame grip our hearts because we allowed Him to go there in our place because we have sinned. And may we ever fear with awe the man of that cross as he approaches our souls. May we identify with the Apostle Paul who could have been glorified in his dramatic and miraculous experience on the road to Damascus. Instead, he whispered in awe of God's great love in Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It was my hands who put him on that cross. Though I never touched it, and the reality of that, yet it was as if I were the one who was with hammer and nail that put him there. Can you see yourself there as well? But aren't you glad that the hands that touched that cross, that were nailed there, they bring us our salvation? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. The cruelty of that moment in which Jesus spent just those few short hours of eternity right there on that cross. The wounds that were afflicted upon him because of me, because of us. Father, forgive us. We were stupid. We were ignorant. We didn't know what we were doing. And yet, there are times we full well know exactly what it is we do when we encounter sin in our lives and we embrace it. But we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. It's in his name. Amen. Stand.